Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. My name is John Perrine, I'm your host, and we've been doing something of a different series for the last couple episodes. Typically, we focus on a book of the Bible, we dive in deep, we ask some burning questions, and we seek this encounter. But right now, I've been taking you through the Confessions of St. Augustine. And these confessions have been inviting us to ponder, why is it that our identity is so hard to find? Why is our identity so contested in this current cultural moment? And yet, if we were to have a resource, a guide to help us craft and to contemplate what our identity is, who would we turn to? I've been proposing that Augustine and his confessions is the guide we need here and now in the 21st century, in this secular age, in our cultural contestedness, to give us a vision of what it looks like to not just build our own identity, but to receive an identity before God. So this episode, we finally, we finally are at the famous scene in which Augustine is going to turn, turn back to God. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to say. We'll be diving into book eight and book nine of the confessions if you've been following along. So without further ado, let's dive in. So this is it. This is the famous scene. If you've heard anything about the confessions, you were probably aware that at some point, Augustine is going to have this moment, this moment where he collapses beneath the fig tree, where he hears the famous Latin phrase, toli legi, take up, read, and he's going to encounter in the scriptures the very word of God speaking directly to his life. It's it's kind of an amazing moment. It's very iconic. It's like one of those great directors who happens to capture a scene that even where most movies, there's just sort of a blandness where everything sort of runs together. But there's in some movies, those particular scenes that are going to stand out, that stand the test of time, that become iconic in themselves. This is Augustine's iconic scene. It's almost impossible to forget. He builds towards it. If you happen to read book eight of the Confessions, Augustine's going to build to it like a master storyteller. He's going to leave you in suspense. He's going to take you through twists and turns. He's going to put you on the edge of your seat as you wonder, is Augustine going to turn to God or is he not? And yet, what I'm excited to draw out in this episode is that there's so many beautifully complex layers that go beneath just the typical scene that maybe you heard mentioned in a sermon or that somebody brought up or that a, an English lit teacher made you read back in sophomore year of high school. This scene is going to have all sorts of biblical allusions going on underneath. The scene is going to be pivotal theologically for Augustine and how he views conversion itself. This scene is going to be misrepresented. In all kinds of traditions, it's going to be misused in evangelical traditions. It's going to be misused in Protestant traditions. It's going to be misused in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions. But then, after talking about this scene beneath the fig tree, what's going to be even more interesting is noticing there's this one final book, book nine of the Confessions, that will conclude the biographical details of Augustine's life before he turns infamously, as we'll discover in the next episode, to some more abstraction if this hasn't been abstract enough. But I'm really fascinated as a student of the confessions 
by this question that a couple great scholars have asked, which is, why does Augustine give us an anticlimax? What, what is Augustine trying to teach us through the closing scene? Again, if it's like a great movie that has this amazing, swelling mountain peak of an ending, we're then given book nine. And in book nine, there's going to be some incredible closing threads that I think are going to be important for our own search for identity, for us in the crisis of identity that so many of us today face. So let's begin by talking about book eight. I love reading to you as many selections as I possibly can from the Confessions, and this is where Augustine cranks up the heat from a rhetorical standpoint. I mean, it really is a masterful piece of Latin literature that has stood the test of time because this book in particular demonstrates the full range of Augustine's craft. Let me read you the opening to book eight. In a spirit of thankfulness, let me recall the mercies you lavished on me, my God. To you, let me confess them. May I be flooded with love for you until my very bones cry out, Who is like you, O Lord? Let me offer you a sacrifice of praise, for you have snapped my bonds. How you broke them I will relate, so that all your worshipers who hear my tale may exclaim, Blessed be the Lord, blessed in heaven and on earth, for great and wonderful is his name. And then I love just this little line that Augustine is going to give here. Sort of encapsulates where he's about to take us. He says, Your words were now firmly implanted in my heart of hearts, and I was besieged by you on every side. This is the situation Augustine finds himself in Book 8, like so many before him. And I think here of a number of beautiful stories I've heard of people who were born like Augustine into a religious background, never really got into it, walked away like Augustine through their adult life, went on a journey, was searching through life for meaning, for purpose, but then suddenly began to notice that all of these contextual pieces were starting to pull them back towards God. If you look back on Augustine's life, he's been on this career journey from Rome to Milan, but when he's in Milan, he's now listening to Ambrose. His mother is with him. She's in church all the time. She's speaking to him in church. He's talking to these friends who are all wrestling with the same questions as him. They're all asking, where can meaning be found? Where can purpose be found? Augustine himself has been starting to read the scriptures more closely. He's been starting to ponder Christianity in an even deeper way than the Manichaeism, which was always his sort of Christianity light, intellectual Christianity, nice ideals of Christianity mixed in with a little something extra. And as Augustine is now nearing the moment where he needs to figure out what he has to do with all of these questions that have been bubbling within him, he says it's like the Lord had besieged him. The word is there planted in Augustine's heart, and now the pressure is building. So he's going to give us two stories. Two stories before the fig tree that are really beautiful stories. But here's the thing for Augustine. If you track the story of his life, there's really two problems that have been holding Augustine back. One problem for Augustine is that everything in his upbringing had geared and pointed him towards the pursuit of ambition, success, wealth, and power. In the Roman world, These things mattered perhaps even more than they would matter today. In America, at least, you can become self-made. In America, it's not impossible for you to go from rags to riches. It is certainly not impossible for you to secure a great 
wealth and legacy for yourself. In fact, you think about the richest guys in the world right now, guys like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. These are self-made men who went from obscurity, who had very little, and who through incredible hard work and entrepreneurship made their own destiny, became these extraordinary individuals of success, influence, and power. In the Roman world, it was so much more controlled than that. It was all about titles and offices. It was about the central Roman government that distributed access to status and wealth and power. And there were very clear ladders you had to climb. I mean, the closest thing today is is like an Ivy League education, that if you aren't Ivy League, well, then you aren't accepted in some circles. That was very much how Augustine was moving through his life of ambition up to this point. And he'd been working really hard, really hard to finagle and posture and get to a point where the ultimate status symbol would be to possess a governorship, a provincial title in which you'd be given a ton of land, you'd be given lots of wealth, you would be stable and secure. And there was a noble part of Augustine that he would have said to himself, I'm really doing it because I want to set up this life of leisure, this life where I can then truly live thoughtfully reflectively, philosophically. You have to see Augustine not just as a caricature, not just as a one-track-minded, worldly ambition, do-or-die, power-for-power's sake. Augustine was always nuanced, he was always complicated, but this carrot, this dream of being able to secure that kind of status symbol had been placed in front of him his whole life, and to Augustine's credit, he had made a lot of progress on that path, even as he's been telling us he was utterly miserable in the pursuit. So it was very serious for Augustine that as he was nearing closer, edging towards the Christian faith, one of the things he was really pondering was, could he give up that status? Could he give up that position? Could he give up that wealth? Could he give up that access that his whole life up to this point had been invested towards? The second issue for Augustine, as you track with him closely, is an even more obvious one. Augustine is clear through his whole story that sex was important to him, that sex was enjoyed by him, that sex was central to the relationship he had with his concubine. And what was going on at the time that would require a whole different episode on its own, but is a really fascinating conversation, was that in the Roman world, because Roman sexuality was so licentious, and what I mean by that is that In Roman circles, the basic gist was that if you had power, you were entitled to sex with anyone. If you were the head of a household, if you were a citizen of Rome, if you had land and any form of money or status, then it was of course expected that you would sleep with your wife. It of course was open that you could sleep with prostitutes or especially servants or slaves in your own household. Basically, as long as you didn't really infringe on anyone else's territory with anyone else's wife, but even then, as long as you're not caught, there was no moral compass or guidance in which sexuality was contained, and those who were on the bottom rungs of society would normally end up finding themselves in prostitution, so sexuality was the the means they needed to use to survive. If you were a servant or a slave, it was expected, much like would horrifyingly take place in later plantation-era slavery in the United States, It was just expected that owners could and would sleep with their servants, their slaves, and even homosexuality at the time was a pretty steady, regular part of society that if you were a wealthy 
man, you could just do whatever you wanted sexually. It, it, that's just how it was. And so the reason why all that matters is that the church then in the Roman society had this radical vision developed from the Hebrew scriptures and honed by the Apostle Paul that the Christian, because they were bought by Christ, because their sins had been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and because their bodies themselves were now united to Christ through their baptism, what that meant was that their sexuality was no longer a tool of pleasure that they could operate in any way that they wanted, but that instead you either were restrained to sexuality in marriage for the very clear purpose of child-rearing, for the very clear purpose of having more children, or an even higher, nobler aim, if you read the New Testament closely, is that you would deny yourself this worldly pleasure of sex so that you could focus on the work of the church and the kingdom, much like who in the New Testament were two of the greatest models to emulate. Well, Jesus Christ himself, who of course was never married, and the Apostle Paul, who was also celibate. So there's this sense in which Augustine realizes, even though it was never forcibly articulated, and in theory he could have still gotten married, if you track with where Augustine is at in his journey, his mother has worked to find for him a young, likely teenage girl. Uh, she's probably 13, nearing 14 at this point, which was very acceptable. Augustine's in his 30s. He's been committed to marry this girl who's from a very wealthy family who would give him lots of status, access, and wealth in society. And as Augustine's staring at all of that, the typical practice in the Roman church at that time was that if you were an upper-class elite and you wanted to serve God, then you likely needed to renounce sexuality as a witness, as a sign to a culture in which sexuality was rampant, frequently abused, and easily corrupted. That doesn't mean, of course, that Augustine in his later writings would get everything about sexuality right. Sexuality is often the thing that most theologians, most contemporary scholars on Augustine would press back on Augustine. I don't think I can think of anyone who in a Protestant or even a Catholic tradition today would say that they fully align with the vision of sexuality that Augustine would paint. But I give that context to say in his day, in his time, I think there was something important that Christians were doing and wrestling with in the recognition that the way society was structured, sex was not neutral. Instead, there were very important choices that needed to be made around sexuality as you worked out your allegiance to God. It was a vibrant and vital issue. And I would say in that sense, it's probably pretty similar today to the same challenges and to the same culture wars, to the same very important theological conversations that we have continued to have around sex. And that was part of what I was getting into as we worked through the Song of Songs in our last series. So for Augustine then, those two questions, the ambition of secular power, status, wealth, and a life of sexuality both hung in the balance. And Augustine was delaying his final conversion because he knew, he knew to turn to God, he would need to confront these two issues that had quite literally dominated the trajectory of his life up until this point, and that would have very real and serious consequences in what would happen next in Augustine's life. So he wants to give us then the push. What happened to get him to the point where he would change? The first thing that happened, I just find to be a beautiful moment from Augustine's life. He talks about a man called Simplicianus. Simplicianus. And Simplicianus 
was an older mentor to Ambrose. I think that's kind of fun to reflect on. Ambrose is this legendary figure, probably in his 50s, around the time that Augustine is there in Milan. Augustine's just turning 30. Simplicianus is likely older still, maybe in his 60s or 70s even. And Simplicianus would actually become bishop after Ambrose, which is kind of remarkable, even though he was quite advanced in years. This guy is a legend, and yet I've met some of these figures in the church. You can just tell he's a mentor of mentors. He's not in it for the spotlight. He himself is not a dominating figure, but he is a wise sage. So Augustine had had a chance to interact with him in Rome and now is going to reapproach him. He hasn't been able to have this sit down with Ambrose. He hasn't been able to hash out all of his questions, but he gets a chance to sit down with Simplicianus. And as he does, Simplicianus is going to tell him of a rather interesting story. You can almost see the twinkle in Simplicianus's eyes as he listens to Augustine wrestle with ambition and sex and what he's going to do, these, these pulls that he has on his heart, his desire to live this contemplative life. Simplicianus tells him the story of a man named Victorinus. So if you are struggling with the names, we've got Simplicianus and Victorinus. Now, Victorinus was a highly regarded rhetorician in Rome. So he's one of these guys like Augustine's career track, who is an orator, who is known for having incredible speeches. And what Simplicianus is going to tell Augustine is that Victorinus was also highly regarded in his field as a rhetorician, but would make a private shift towards Christianity and had to choose what he was going to do about it. Basically, it came down to Victorinus's baptism. And the church in Rome, just really grateful that Victorinus had come to them at all, that Victorinus was turning back to God gave Victorinus this option if he wanted to do his baptism privately. Most baptisms would happen publicly in the church and where the person who was being baptized would publicly recite the creeds of the faith in order to confess, profess before watching society, anyone who was there, but especially to the church, that they were committing themselves to Christ. And yet, because they knew this was very loaded, that Victorinus was a highly regarded, a, he was a celebrity of sorts in the society, they wanted to give him the option to do it privately just so he wouldn't have to worry about mobs or crowds or any of the rest. And yet, he notes that Victorinus decides to stand up in front of the crowd where both Christians and non-Christians were gathered. And with the power and eloquence that only a rhetorician of the highest caliber in this golden age of rhetoric could have mustered, Victorinus is going to offer to the crowd his profession of faith. and. Simplicianus, uh, this is his summary. Spontaneous was the crowd shout of delight as they saw him, and spontaneous their attentive silence to hear him. With magnificent confidence, he proclaimed the true faith, and all the people longed to clasp him tenderly to their heart. And so they did, by loving him and rejoicing with him, for those affections were like clasping hands. So Augustine's going to immediately reflect, this is how the flow of confessions works. I just love Augustine's wrestling as he's talking you through his story. He's going to reflect in the very next line, O God who are so good, what is it in the human heart that makes us rejoice more intensely over the salvation of a soul which is despaired of but then freed from grave danger? Then we would if there had always been good prospects for it and its peril slighter. You too, merciful Father, yes, even you are more joyful over one repentant sinner than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. 
Augustine basically says, Simplicianus, he got me. He knew me. He knew exactly where I was and what I needed. He knew that story would move me. And it moves Augustine not only because there are parallels with Augustine being successful, being highly regarded in society, and because eventually Augustine's conversion, even as we read it now, would become even more celebrated than Victorinus's and even more central and lively to the reflection of society that if even Augustine was converted, then surely you too might consider this invitation to God. But I, I just love that Augustine makes it personal. Like for him, so often Augustine's struggle, as I've heard from many a many, even now who I'm in relationship with, who are not yet themselves Christians, even as they live quite proximately to Christian community and the church, for so many, they just say, I just don't know how I could ever make it back in. I just don't know how I could ever go back. I don't know how I could ever be accepted into this society, this holy, pure, often presenting as perfect and have it all together community that is the church. How could I ever make it back in? And Simplicianus gives this beautiful tale that Augustine understands the depth of, that in the one repentant sinner, we find an exuberance of joy and hope that the 99 who were never in danger cannot truly convey to our hearts. So Augustine now is going to say, I love Simplicianus, knew exactly what he was doing. Augustine will admit as much. He says, on hearing this story, I was fired to imitate Victorinus. Indeed, it was to this end that your servant, Simplicianus, had related it. But for as powerful a story and moment as Simplicianus had with Augustine, he's going to confess that there was something still holding him back. This is what Augustine says. I ached for a like chance myself. For it was no iron chain imposed by anyone else that fettered me, but the iron of my own will. The enemy had my power of willing in his clutches, and from it had forged a chain to bind me. The truth is that disordered lust springs from a perverted will, and when lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion. These were like interlinking rings forming what I have described as a chain, and my harsh servitude used it to keep me under duress. So basically, long story short, as moved as Augustine was, as ready almost and willing as he was to want to make this leap, he just had this inner struggle with his will. He had the ingrained habits of lust that he was not yet ready to give up on. Here is Augustine relentlessly honest and relentlessly human. And yet here's Augustine also trying to make an inner point about identity. In identity, Augustine sees that our desires become habituated, they become ingrained. Augustine was highly attuned to the inner struggle between the will and desire. And where Augustine refuses to be black and white or overly simplistic is that he doesn't see one dominating the other. Instead, he sees this interwoven, interconnected struggle constantly taking place. You hear it in Augustine. He, he longs for God. He wants God. He's interested in, in God. And yet he sees fundamentally there is this gravitational pull back towards the entanglement of himself, back towards his own will, his own desires, his own self-protection. And so Augustine's now just going to let the pressure keep ramping. He aches, he moans, he wrestles, he reflects on why it is that his will was so contested. He calls out to God even as he resists the God that he's calling out to. Some of these passages are so moving, they're haunting, and yet they also ring true. 
Here's where the next turn, though, will occur. And for Augustine, just notice, as we're moving towards his confessions, it was important for Augustine that agents, agents of God, are stepping in and are disrupting. Notice that Augustine is not in the ivory tower of his mind, coming up with decisions on his own. This is so central to Augustine's thinking as he would continue to mature. The nature of conversion and change in one's identity is always going to be communal. It's always going to be communal. And so after Simplicianus, the next character that steps in is Ponticianus. Ponticianus. Now, you don't need to remember these names. But Ponticianus is now going to be another character who shows up to Augustine and his friend, Olypius. We're going to come back to Olypius. But Ponticianus is going to show up, and he's going to note that Olypius and Augustine, as they sit down to talk, uh, see that nearby there's a book on a table. And the book, as Ponticianus looks more closely, happens to be one of the books of the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul. This gets him really excited that Ponticianus himself is a Christian and is thrilled to know why Augustine is studying Paul more closely. As Augustine and Olypius share that they've been exploring, researching Christianity, Ponticianus is going to tell them yet another story. So the story Ponticianus tells is one of Ponticianus and his three friends wrestling themselves before their conversion. And as they're in Rome, they happen upon this cottage outside of a city wall in which in this cottage is a book called The Life of Antony. Now, The Life of Antony is kind of a fascinating book. It was written by Athanasius. It would be the first recorded piece of writing biography on a desert monastic figure. So The Life of Antony was what Athanasius discovered during one of his exiles as he sort of closely pondered and explored this community that had risen up around Antony, a man who had retreated to the desert to live in prayer and fasting and dedication to God. So all of this, of course, is very fascinating to Augustine. Ponticianus says that this book becomes the conversation piece for him and his friends. And listen to this question that Ponticianus asks with his friends that he's now relating to Augustine. Ponticianus says, What? are we looking for? In whose cause are we striving? Does life at court promise us anything better than promotion to being friends of the emperor? And once we are, will that not be a precarious position fraught with perils? Will it not mean negotiating many a hazard only to end in greater danger still? And how long would it take us to get there? Whereas I can become a friend of God here and now if I want to. So this is Ponticianus still speaking. This is Augustine recounting the story as coming from Ponticianus's lips. But here's what happens to Ponticianus. Augustine says, Even as he spoke, he was in labor with the new life that was struggling to birth within him. He directed his eyes back to the page, and as he read, a change began to occur in that hidden place within him, where you alone can see. His mind was being stripped of the world as presently became apparent. The flood tide of his heart leapt on, and at last he broke off his reading with a groan as he discerned the right course and determined to take it. By now, he belonged to you. I have already torn myself away from the ambitions we cherished and have made up my mind to serve God, he told his friend. I am going to set about it this very moment and in this place. If you have no stomach to imitate me, at least don't stand in my way. The other, the friend of Ponticianus, replied that he would bear him company. So as Augustine is listening, understandably, It's cutting him to the core. In fact, here's how Augustine is going to describe it. 
He says, Ponticianus went on with his story, but Lord, even while he spoke, you were wrenching me back towards myself and pulling me around from that standpoint behind my back, which I had taken to avoid looking at myself. You set me down before my face, forcing me to mark how despicable I was, how misshapen and begrimed, filthy and festering. I saw and shuddered. If I tried to turn my gaze away, he went on relentlessly telling his tale, and you set me before myself once more, thrusting me into my sight that I might perceive my sin and hate it. I had been aware of it all along, but I had been glossing over it, suppressing it, and forgetting. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that such a vivid description? This is a key part of identity for Augustine. I don't want us to miss this. I know there's a lot happening, and Augustine is just ramping up the pressure in his soul. But do you catch that? For Augustine, this is, this is encounter with God. This is even here with the burning word. What I've been wrestling with the last year and a half working with this podcast, this is the point and purpose. This is what your life is calling you towards, that there would be moments, hopefully many moments, but just even if there's one moment where you actually look and see yourself, you see yourself clearly, not with the, the cover-up, not with the lies that you tell yourself, not with the way you've tried to gloss the image of yourself, the makeup and the appearances and the status and the symbols that you try to surround yourself with, but that you would see your soul honestly as it is. And yet that instead of being tipped into a shameful despair, into a self-hatred or self-loathing, that God would allow you in this glimpsing moment to see who you were truly and to call forth that which you could be, that which could be so much more than who you currently are. This is the invitation of identity. This is actually the gift of confession that is driving Augustine's entire life, that's been driving his entire recounting. So listen now as he continues. I had been putting off the moment when by spurning earthly happiness, I would clear space in my life to search for wisdom. Yet even to seek it, let alone find it, would have been more rewarding than discovery of treasure or possession of this world's kingdom or having every bodily pleasure at my beck and call. I'd been extremely miserable in adolescence, miserable from its very onset. And as I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I had even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. So I had wandered off into the crooked paths of a sacrilegious superstition, not because I had any certainty about it, but because I preferred it to other beliefs. Not that I was investigating these in any spirit of reverence, rather was I opposing them with malicious intent. I had been telling myself that my reason for putting off day after day the decision to renounce worldly ambition and follow you alone was that I could as yet see no certain light by which to steer my course. But the day had dawned when I was stripped naked in my own eyes and my conscience challenged me within. Where is your ready tongue now? You have been professing yourself reluctant to throw off your load of illusion because truth was uncertain. Well, it is certain now. Yet the burden still weighs you down while other people are given wings on freer shoulders. People who have not worn themselves out with research, nor spent a decade and more reflecting on these questions. Gustin continues, My conscience gnawed away at me in this fashion, and I was fiercely shamed and flung into hideous confusion. 
when Ponticianus was relating all this. Having brought the conversation to a close and settled his business with us, he returned to his place, and I to myself. Was anything left unsaid in my inner debate? Was there any whip of sage advice I had left unused to lash my soul into coming with me as I tried to follow you? It fought and resisted, but could find no excuse. All its arguments had been used up and refuted, but there remained a dumb dread. Frightful as death seemed the restraining of habit's oozy discharge, that very seepage which was rotting it to death. Oh, it's just so good. It's so hard. It's so honest. When you actually look at yourself, honestly, what do you see? Augustine is provided in this moment one of those piercing insights into himself that so many of us long for, and yet that's so hard to come to. I think of a few times I've sat with a therapist. I think of a few times I've been truly quiet. Yet even then, there are so many illusions that we put up to protect ourselves from the honest, cold, hard facts of who each of us truly are. And yet here, Augustine finally is peeling away those layers and he's seeing. He's been deluding himself. He's been promising himself that there would be something waiting for him at the end of this journey. And yet now he's just finally seeing it's oozy, rotten discharge in his soul that's quite literally killing him as he's avoiding the moment of truth and reckoning that his whole life has been guiding him towards. So let me just keep reading. Within the house of my spirit, the violent conflict raged, the quarrel with my soul that I had so powerfully provoked in our secret dwelling, my heart. And at the height of it, I rushed to Olypius with my mental anguish plain upon my face. What is happening to us? I exclaimed. What does this mean? What did you make of it? The untaught are rising up and taking heaven by storm, while we with all our dispassionate teaching are still groveling in this world of flesh and blood. Are we ashamed to follow just because they have taken the lead, yet not ashamed of lacking the courage even to follow? Some such words as these I spoke, and then my frenzy tore me away from him, while he regarded me in silent bewilderment. Unusual certainly was my speech, but my brow, cheeks, and eyes, my flushed countenance, and the cadences of my voice expressed my mind more fully than the words I uttered. Now here's where Augustine turns. Adjacent to our lodgings was a small garden. I just want to pause here to note. The tree in the garden that occurred back in book two was a vital and important and perhaps easy to miss symbolic image that's taking Augustine back to scripture. Now, very intentionally, you're going to hear, the garden and the tree are going to reemerge. Augustine says, we were free to make use of it, as well as of the house, for our hosts who owned the house did not live there. The tumult in my breast had swept me away to this place, where no one would interfere with the blazing dispute I had engaged in with myself, until it should be resolved. What the outcome would be, you knew, not I. Dying that I might live, aware of the evil that I was, but unaware of the good I was soon to become. So I went out into the garden, and Olypius followed at my heels. My privacy was not infringed by his presence, and in any case, how could he abandon me in that state? We sat down as far as possible from the house. I was groaning in spirit, and shaken by violent anger because I could form no resolve to enter into a covenant with you, though in my bones I knew that this was what I ought to do, and everything in me lauded such a course to the skies. It was a journey not to be undertaken by ship or carriage or on foot, nor need it take me even that short distance I had walked from the house to the place where we were sitting, for to travel 
and more to reach journey's end was nothing else but to want to go there, but to want it valiantly and with all my heart, not to whirl and toss this way and that, a will half crippled by the struggle, as part of it rose up to walk while part sank down. I'm sure you're catching that Augustine's he's trying with vivid language to capture what an inner contest of the soul looks like. And if you were to ask me why I love Augustine, why I think Augustine is so important, it's because there will be so many followers of Augustine who will, in their own temptation to cut off dualisms from themselves, to go one way or other, to set even, for example, the head against the heart, or to set reason against desire. Augustine, relentlessly through his storytelling, through his rhetoric, is drawing you in to the nature of life in which these things occupy space right next to each other and yet they can't be separated. Augustine wants to do good and yet fears the good. What kind of a contradiction is that? But Augustine wants God and is trying to flee from God. Augustine needs to go on this journey that is as simple as willing it with his whole heart, and yet he cannot pull his body up even as his soul pulls himself back down. What kind of a mess is it that Augustine is describing other than something that is as real to each of us as the day-to-day -day grind of trying to figure out, will I get up with my alarm this morning or will I hit the snooze again? Will I lean in to character and integrity this afternoon as I'm making decisions at work? Or will I slide back into passivity? Will I become the kind of person of righteousness and compassion and love and truth that in my heart of hearts I know I want to be? Or will I struggle with selfishness, with pride, with deceit, and with envy? This is why Augustine matters. This is why his story matters. This is why for you, I want I want this story to provoke your story. I want this scene in Augustine's life to give you an invitation into your own scenes, maybe scenes even now in your own heart. Where, where are you struggling beneath the fig tree? Where are you struggling in the garden next to your house? Have you struggled in a while? Have you grown complacent in your soul? Have you actually honestly wrestled with and assessed the state of yourself before God in a while. That's what I think Augustine offers. I think he's doing it very intentionally. There's some scholarship, because I try to give you a nod. You don't need to read these laborious articles that I'm working through in my doctorate. Uh, but there's some scholarship that has pushed back recently, questioning the reality, the historical truthfulness of this garden event. And the basic contest is, Augustine's a rhetorician, like so many rhetoricians in a postmodern age, the highest currency is to doubt the truthfulness of everything. And so uh, there's valid questions to be asked. Did this scene happen? Much like any scene told in any memoir, I think of George Washington and the cherry tree, the infamous tale from our nation's founder that somehow, even in the 1990s, as I'm growing up was being repeated in school like everybody knew about the cherry tree and george washington and then of course you've discovered this event could never have happened but then you read a little bit further and you have to ask yourself well, was it that it never happened is is that there's no truthfulness in the character of george washington where he would have resisted lying and being deceitful do we know every moment that happened in his childhood i mean this is the the malaise the sea of uncertainty that postmodernity invites you to swim into i push all that to the side 
for the moment, and hopefully I haven't distracted you too much from the scene, to point out the reason why the garden matters for Augustine is not so much so that we can watch the movie of Augustine's life and see vividly the scene of him, but it's because Augustine, the bishop, is trying to capture for you the struggle that takes place for any conversion, anytime there's a turn in your life, anytime you're going to turn from one way to another, this kind of awareness, this kind of honesty, this kind of truthfulness, and this kind of wretchedness even in your own inner state is likely going to be required. And so Augustine's trying to give you guidance. You need you need the garden. You need to move back into the garden if you're going to honestly reckon with yourself. So let me continue then. How how does this resolve? Where could this possibly go? Augustine has us on the edge of our seats. Here's what he says. Such was the sickness in which I agonized, blaming myself more sharply than ever, turning and twisting in my chain as I strove to tear free from it completely. For slender indeed was the bond that still held me. But hold me it did. In my secret heart you stood by me, Lord, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame and the severity of your mercy, lest I give up the struggle and that slender, fragile bond that remained be not broken after all, but thicken again and constrict me more tightly. Let it be now, I was saying to myself. Now is the moment. Let it be now. And merely by saying this, I was moving towards the decision. I would almost achieve it, but then fall just short. Yet I did not slip right down to my starting point, but stood aside to get my breath back. Then I would make a fresh attempt, and now I was almost there. Almost there. I was touching the goal, grasping it, and then I was not there, not touching, not grasping it. I shrank from dying to death and living to life, for ingrained evil was more powerful in me than new grafted good. The nearer it came, that moment when I would be changed, the more it pierced me with terror. Dismayed but not quite dislodged, I was left hanging. All this argument in my heart raged only between myself and myself. Olypius stood fast at my side, silently awaiting the outcome of my unprecedented agitation. But as this deep meditation dredged all my wretchedness up from the secret profundity of my being and heaped it all together before the eyes of my heart, a huge storm blew up within me and brought on a heavy rain of tears. In order to pour them out unchecked with the sobs that accompanied them, I arose and left Olypius for solitude seemed to me more suitable for the business of weeping. I withdrew far enough to ensure that his presence, even his, would not be burdensome to me. This was my need, and he understood it, for I think I had risen to my feet and blurted out something, my voice already choked with tears. He accordingly remained in stunned amazement at the place where we had been sitting. I flung myself down somehow under a fig tree and gave free rein to the tears that burst from my eyes like rivers, an acceptable sacrifice to you. Many things I had to say to you, and the gist of them, though not the precise words, was, O Lord, how long? How long will you be angry forever? Do not remember our age-old sins, for by these I was conscious of being held prisoner. I uttered cries of misery. Why must I go on saying tomorrow, tomorrow? Why not now? Why not put an end to my depravity this very hour? I went on talking like this and weeping in the intense bitterness of my broken heart. Suddenly, I heard a voice from a house nearby, perhaps a voice of some boy or girl I do not know, singing over and over again. Pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. 
My expression immediately altered, and I began to think hard whether children ordinarily repeated a ditty like this in any sort of game, but I could not recall ever having heard it anywhere else. I stemmed the flood of tears and rose to my feet, believing that this could be nothing other than a divine command to open the book and read the first passage I chanced upon. For I had heard the story of how Antony had been instructed by a gospel text. Stung into action, I returned to the place where Lippius was sitting. For on leaving it, I had put down there the book of the apostles' letters. I snatched it up and opened it and read in silence the passage on which my eyes first delighted. Not in dissipation and drunkenness, nor in debauchery and lewdness, nor in arguing and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, the gratification of your desires. I had no wish to read further, nor was there need. No sooner had I reached the end of the verse than the light of certainty flooded my heart and all dark shades of doubt fled away. It's quite a scene and quite a passage. I mentioned at the start of this episode that it's easy to miss some of the details and subtlety. The tree that's come back now, the tree of life that Augustine flings himself under. The fact that the children's words sort of linger mysteriously somewhere between the innocence and humility of childlike faith, with perhaps an angelic voice of divine command, with perhaps just the circumstance of providence, of a game being played that is speaking a profound truth, and that ultimately what is the command that's given to Augustine? Take up and read. Take up and read. Return to the word. And as Augustine reads the word, the first passage he opens to, the oldest trick in the youth group game, where you fling the Bible open to see what God has to say. What does Augustine encounter but the command? Put on Christ and turn away from your own sinful desires. While I perhaps at the start of the episode suggested that this scene can often be misused, it's easy to see when you sit with it just how weighty a symbol this scene truly is how iconic a scene it is, how beautifully Augustine crafts one of the great first conversion moments with more penetrating insight to the inner world of the converted than perhaps any other ancient story. A couple scholars note that Augustine was fascinated by Paul's conversion story on the road to Damascus, but Augustine is giving us far more inner world dialogue than the Apostle Paul gave us, even though the Apostle Paul likely had an experience like the one Augustine is relating. This clearly is someone who was wrestling deeply and who had a clear moment of choice. No wonder the evangelical tradition has loved highlighting this moment from Augustine, and it of course has spurred on the really helpful and very real insight that so often for many Christians, if not most Christians, there's this clear moment of certainty. There's this clear moment of repentance. There's this clear moment of change that one can mark where we see the shift of the inner life be one away from a enslavement to sin, as the Apostle Paul says, to instead embark upon the newness of life in the spirit, the rebirth, the new birth, the conversion to Christ in faith. Yet some recent scholarship on Augustine has helpfully pointed out sometimes the power of the conversion in the scene can mask that this scene is intended very intentionally by Augustine to be situated in the overarching 
narrative that we've walked through these last few episodes. For Augustine, this conversion is the culmination of a release from bondage in his will to a commitment, a commitment to worldly ambition and to sex. But these conversions for Augustine could not have happened if a number of other facets had not taken place, including including a very early commitment at the age of 18 to read Cicero and to pursue wisdom, including the recent discovery of Platonic works that talked quite a bit about God and the ideal and the forms of the earth and virtue and character. So the point that recent scholarship has been pushing on the scene, one example that I've really enjoyed is the Oxford historian Robin Lane Fox. He points out it's not so much conversion, as in this is the only scene that matters where a decision is made in Augustine, but instead, confessions always take place alongside conversions. The sense in which Augustine has been slowly, ever so slowly, turning almost his whole life back to God as you listen to him recount this tale. And while there is a clear moment in which he commits anew in a fresh and deeper way that he had not yet previously done. There's this beautiful, robust complexity. I think that's the only point that's worth being made when we sit with this scene. There's this complexity in our stories where it sounds glamorous to get up on stage and to talk about the moment when a prayer is prayed. But Augustine himself is really interested not just in the moment of change, but in the story that leads to the moment, in all of the moments of converting that lead to a conversion, of all of the conversions of the heart that had to prepare you for the ultimate commitment one makes in faith to Jesus Christ that is followed by a profession of faith and a baptism into the church. For Augustine, they're not disconnected. There, there's not a discontinuity. There, there's not even a miraculousness to the moment itself as if it came out of nowhere or it was a blinding light. Instead, Augustine is more fascinated that in his story, there has been a slowly and steadily dawning light that has pierced into him from so many different angles and sides and that would culminate in a great wrestling of the soul Yet in the depths of his wrestling, what he finds is that ultimately, it is a gift. Ultimately, this moment of conversion is yet again a gift in Christ, a gift of grace, a gift given to him not in the power or profoundness of Augustine's works. It's not given to him because of a righteousness that he had achieved through his own effort or merit. Instead, to the great philosophies of Augustine's day, the Platonism and the Stoicism, both of which were ultimately about the work an individual could do, either to contemplate inwardly in themselves the great mysteries of reality. This was sort of the equivalent to the philosophical tradition we now have today, where if you really, if you really ponder in wisdom the mysteries of the world, then you can become enlightened, enlivened, insightful. Or the Stoicism of Augustine's day, which was parallel trajectory in which instead of being inwardly focused, you were externally focused. And if you just simply rigidly controlled and mastered your body in Stoicism, then you could become the master of your own destiny. You could repress unruly emotions and you could live then in the freedom of a self unencumbered 
by those obstacles of pain, suffering, no longer can pain and disappointment and your unruly emotions master you. Instead, you are master of your body, master of your inner world. I think today of an equivalent, which is the fascination secular culture inevitably is going to keep having with Buddhism that presents to you the possibility through mindfulness, through yoga, through an external mastery of your body, through self-help and positive psychology, that you could become somehow freed from the struggle of suffering, freed from the struggle of existence in the world. To both of these profoundly powerful worldviews, Augustine offers a conversion that is less about a final moment of intellectual reasoning and is so much more about a deep, contested struggle of the will with a sinfulness that has always been there and a sinfulness that is going to remain in his life. And yet ultimately, this great struggle is going to require an encounter with grace that instead of mastering or achieving its salvation is going to simply and finally submit and allow Christ to be put on it as opposed to putting onto Christ any other burden, expectation, or accomplishment. This is Augustine's confession that at the end of himself, he, through a children's game, was told to pick up and read the word of God, and in reading it could finally see that all that was required, all that would be necessary for the freedom, the happiness, the contentment, and the wisdom that he had been looking for his whole life would be if he released himself and instead put on Christ. You can dislike some of the aspects of Augustine's theology. That's fine. I don't like every aspect of Augustine's theology. You can feel the confusion and disconnect of Augustine's world. But the reason why this book matters, the insight that Augustine offers us, is that if you're going to ever find Christ, at some point you're going to need a moment in the garden. At some point, you're going to need the confrontation with your own selfish and sinful will. And you're going to need, you're going to, need to put on Christ. Is the only invitation that will offer you the freedom that all the other worldviews and trajectories cannot accomplish. So if this is Augustine's confession, how does he conclude his tale in Book 9? Well, interestingly and beautifully, I love that Augustine just gets really honest in Book 9. This is why I think Book 9 is a necessary conclusion. I read one commentator, Kim Paffenroth, who notes that Augustine, the rhetorician, uses the unexpected findings of Book 9 to subvert all our expectations up to this point. So we expect now a triumphant announcement after Augustine's conversion of his steady march into the sainthood of a bishop, right? That's what we want. We want up and to the right glory. Instead, Augustine will immediately launch into the sort of ambiguous trajectory he goes on with his career. In fact, it's kind of funny if you read it close. Augustine says, so I knew I needed to leave being an orator and being a teacher of students. That's what, how a lot of orators got their money on the side. So I was teaching students and there was a term time still, and I knew I, I probably should renounce it right away, but I knew it would be kind of public and messy and what would I do with my students? And so so I didn't announce it right away. Instead, I actually, I got sick. Um, this is all from book nine. Augustine says, I had a really bad chest infection. In fact, it got to the point where I couldn't speak. 
just on a side note, I wouldn't be surprised if the immense stress and strain, the moment of Augustine's conversion didn't literally take its toll on Augustine's body. I mean, it's pretty clear now with what we understand about the intermingling of health and the psychological state of our minds. Augustine's body is keeping the score and has literally wiped out his ability to speak professionally. And yet, Augustine sort of notes this is an embarrassing and whimpering of an ending to his rhetorical career. It, it whimpers out. He doesn't do the bold, courageous public announcement at this point. Instead, he just quietly noting his poor health is going to ride out the end of his term. And then at the conclusion of the school term, Augustine doesn't pick up any new students. Now, while he's doing that, Augustine will note the beauty that's taking place as he decides to be baptized in the ancient church what would have happened was a year-long process of preparation in which the one who was preparing to be baptized would be instructed on how to read the scriptures augustine tells us that ambrose directs him to the book of isaiah yet here again you just have to love augustine's anticlimactic honesty he says i tried to read isaiah and i honestly had no idea what was going on I think many of us have had that experience, uh, particularly in an early stage of faith, not knowing what is going on in Isaiah. Yet, as Augustine is recalling this process of preparing for his baptism, which would be a public ceremony of profession of his faith, he is reading the Psalms. He says his heart was particularly lifted as he was singing the Psalms. As you start to see scripture reforming and refashioning his identity. I mean, it's just beautiful. And yet it's honest. It's, it's not pretty. It's an infancy. It's, it's a young faith that Augustine is wrestling through. So beautifully, that following Easter, Augustine with Olypius and with his son, Adeodatus, who we haven't gotten much from Augustine about, who isn't mentioned often in the confessions, and who can often be another one of these, along with Augustine's concubine, an easy-to-miss character, even as we would just love to know more. What we learn is that Olypius, Adeodatus, and Augustine are all baptized by Ambrose in Milan. You can almost see the fatherly kindness of Ambrose, who smiles at the 33-year-old Augustine, who, after immense wrestling, has now publicly decided to commit himself to the Lord. And in those days, baptisms would be naked, which seems weird to me. <laughs> it's not an ancient church practice I'm interested in reviving. But the point was, you're stripped down to nothing. You've got nothing on. And as you'd emerge out of the waters, you would be robed in white. So Ambrose is the one who lifts Augustine up out of the waters of his baptism robes him in white, and then you can just see Augustine turn and look at his friend Olypius, his friend who sat with him in his tears, see him be clothed in the newness of life, and then look at his son, his son who is 15 years old, his son who we later would get just a little bit more insight into as Augustine is going to do in his earliest writings after becoming a Christian before the confessions. Uh, he does these dialogues back and forth. We're not going to talk about him that much, but in these dialogues, he has one where he notes the dialogues with his son, and his son, it would seem, is just brilliant, is insightful, has, has all of Augustine's flourishing qualities, that Augustine would see his son come up out of the waters, making this mature profession of faith far earlier than Augustine ever did. Even as, as book nine is continuing, 
in just a short line, and this is one of those other confusing moments in the Confessions, Augustine only gives us one line on it. His son will tragically, tragically die just a short year or two after his baptism, and we don't have much context on it. Augustine doesn't get into it, and much like the concubine, you just don't know, but you sense there's this heaviness. Even as Augustine is saying, he's posturing and framing it as like this son of mine who I never deserved, this son of mine who was born in sin, this son of mine who was a better man than I, this son of mine who at the very least came to know the Lord I now love and cherish and who lives eternally with this Lord. The son of mine is safe and secure, but the son of mine who is taken from me. It's a poignant, haunting scene that reflects the tragic weight of life in Augustine's world. Yet, Augustine is moving past it because his real focus in the final book, in book nine, is to return to his mother, to Monica. Monica is there for his baptism. Monica is there for her grandson's baptism. Monica is there witnessing the transformation that has taken place in Augustine. Yet, interestingly, Augustine turns in Book 9, sometimes referred to as the life of Monica, the short life of Monica, much as earlier in Book 6, when Augustine pauses to give you some more of Olypius' background. Augustine occasionally does this in the Confessions. I mean, how else are we going to get background information about any of these people? Yet, clearly, Augustine has a point to this. He goes back, and now, finally, and track with this, I, I think this is a helpful thought. If Augustine is a rhetorician, if Augustine knows what he's doing, if Augustine is very artful in how he has structured this work, why is it that Augustine waits till book nine to give us the background story to Monica? Well, my best hunch is that Augustine has been presenting Monica as, as a saint. Like, she's very saintly. She's very holy. As the one who perseveres in tears as a witness to Christ. In that sense, Monica is to Augustine, the church, church who has been there, who has been holy, who has been enduring, who is witnessing to him, who is advocating on behalf of him, interceding for him. She is the mother that all of us long for. She is the mother that all of us desire, the, the mother who patiently endures, who cares, who follows us and pursues us. There's something very beautiful and profound about Monica. And yet, as we work through Monica's story, we get these almost disruptive insights about Monica's life at the very end. Disruptive insights that continue to paint her positively, but that reveal more than Monica perhaps herself would have wished. Reveals that as Augustine reflects on Monica's life, her husband Patricius, who was of course Augustine's father, Patricius was having affairs, and Monica patiently endured in her Christian faith because at the time Patricius was not himself a Christian. And so she remained with him. And really hauntingly, but very Roman in its context, Augustine tells us about how Monica as a wife endured in kindness, endured often in silence, just patiently endured her husband's abuses, which of course now we'd say is terrible. Get rid of the scumbag who's cheating on you. Drop the husband who is a terrible husband. And yet, Augustine sets her up. She's a, she's a patient endurer. She, in fact, is so committed to her husband that whereas other wives whose husbands were less evil than Patricia's, this is literally how Augustine's framing it, would beat their wives for far less. Monica was so patient and enduring for her husband that even though Patricia's was notorious as having a temper, now, track with me, we're catching all this now, only now at the end of book nine, even though he had a notorious temper, 
Monica was never beaten by him because she was so patient and kind. <laughs> now again, I'm not saying you don't need to judge <laughs> the merits of this story. I'm not saying that I know exactly how to place Monica in the 21st century pantheon of saints to replicate or <laughs> to model your life after. What I am saying is that Augustine, in the very end, is giving us some pretty brutal facts about the world that he was brought into. Maybe some new insights into respect for his mother, sure, and, and a model in a horribly cruel and brutal world. A model of saintliness that is patient suffering and endurance, much like our Savior, Jesus Christ, of course. But as he's detailing all of this, you're also just beginning to see perhaps why Augustine has so little to say about his father and why he admired so deeply a mother who could turn away wrath by the humble commitment to simply endure and rely upon the Lord, even in the face of a son who was rejecting her faith, even in the face of a husband who had rejected her as a wife. Monica's kind of tragic now as we're getting into the details of her life in book nine. And yet there's one final funny story. It's just funny. It's, it's interesting. It's a head scratcher. But Augustine tells us his mother was known early in her childhood for having this terrible tendency. Now, Monica is the saint. She's the loveliest, loftiest, most amazing, tear-inducing saint that Augustine could picture. And yet we discover that she, as a child, had this pattern where her parents would tell her, Monica, go get us wine from the cellar. And when Monica would go as a child to do this, she at first would take a sip of wine. But if you read the account carefully, what you see is that it got so bad, <laughs> got to this point where Monica was literally getting drunk on the wine she was stealing every time her parents would send her to the cellar. And a couple of great commentators who have caught this scene have noted that Monica now is really only given this one sin that Augustine is going to reveal to us about Monica's life. And yet the sin is just as senseless, just as nothingness, just as land of shadow-y that Augustine's own early sin with the pear tree is going to mirror and display. And so there's this sense in which Augustine now finally after his conversion, if I were to try to articulate why Augustine is revealing his mother in this way, I think it's because Augustine on the other side of his conversion can now see his mother more truthfully, wants us to see his mother perhaps more honestly as one who also with Augustine has shared in the sins of Adam and Eve and yet one who, in the humility and the perseverance of her faith, has stood as this witness to Christ through Augustine's whole life, who is now in the fullness of his maturing faith, offering herself to Augustine and to us, not as the image of the perfected saint, but perhaps as the saintly woman who herself was always in need of grace as well as Augustine. For surely what other saint could there be than one who, much like Augustine, is flawed and imperfect and yet who has cast themselves on the mercy of Christ? The final thing that happens in Book 9 is that Augustine relates to us this vision at Ostia, as it's known. The vision at Ostia. Ostia is a port off of Rome. Augustine and his mother would have been preparing in an attempt to go back to Africa. Augustine now had in his mind the idea that he wanted to live a life, a monastic life, committed to the Lord, that he could do so back where he was from. But as they were preparing to depart, Augustine tells us that he and his mother had this day where they were talking together. 
They were reflecting upon his new faith. They were reflecting upon the Lord. In fact, they were reflecting upon even the life of heaven, the world in which they, with all the saints, would dwell in the presence of God. And Augustine is going to tell us that as they talked and reflected, as they were silent, and as they looked, he says, our colloquy led us to the point where the pleasures of the body senses, however intense and in however brilliant a material light enjoyed, seemed unworthy not merely of comparison, but even of remembrance besides the joy of that life we lifted ourselves in longing yet more ardent towards that which is, and step by step traversed all bodily creatures and heaven itself, whence sun and moon and stars shed their light upon the earth. Higher still we mounted by inward thought and wondering discourse on your works, and we arrived at the summit of our own minds, and this too we transcended, to touch that land of never-failing plenty where you pasture Israel forever with the food of truth. Life there is wisdom through whom all these things were made and all others that have been or ever will be, but wisdom herself is not made. She is as she has always been and will be forever. Rather, should we say that in her there is no has been or will be, but only being, for she is eternal but past and future do not belong to eternity. And as we talked and panted for it, we just touched the edge of it by the utmost leap of our hearts. Then sighing and unsatisfied, we left the first fruits of our spirit captive there and returned to the noise of articulate speech where a word has beginning and end. So this is the vision that Augustine and Monica share. Now, a couple interesting things about this vision. Later in his life, Augustine would say, He never really continued this pursuit. In fact, he sort of walks back the more he matures in his faith from this very Plato-influenced idea of inwardly seeking a vision of the real, of the true. You can still hear there's a Platonic influence here that was described by him in his earlier book, Seven, that now is finally and only after his conversion in Christ actually accomplished. It's satisfied. He, he touches divine being, and instead of being fully satisfied, but instead of being fully disappointed, he and Monica share in this vision of who God is. Augustine is going to warn people away from spending their whole lives pursuing this kind of vision. And he, in later writings especially, is just going to sort of devalue it. He's going to say it's, it's not as important as contemplating the Trinity itself. It's not as important as understanding the city of God. It's not as important as the instruction in the word of God. But in saying that, there clearly is a parallel in which Augustine is concluding something that had started in book seven, where he's trying on his own to see God. He does experience something vivid, meaningful, and profound enough that it will stay with him the rest of his life. And in particular, two final things I would note on this is that Augustine isn't, while there's clearly a platonic influence on Augustine here. Augustine is not totally off base from scripture in which the prophets certainly, but then I think especially of the apostle Paul would talk about visions they have of heaven that become important enough to disclose and yet also become so difficult to describe that words themselves will fail. I would then also note the very clear importance for Augustine in this vision is that it happens now with Monica. Something here that Augustine is too intentional not to give him credit for, a a mirroring of Eden. 
He says they're looking out at the garden once more in Ostia as this vision occurs. A mirroring of man and woman, a mirroring of mother church and of the Christian, the Christian who with the church can now finally see and contemplate God. But finally, the thing to catch is that Monica in the Roman world would have been utterly devalued and underappreciated. Monica was not educated. Monica on her own, she is husbandless, and so she has no status. She has no social symbol. She has no social capital. And the more Augustine tells us about Monica's life, the more we realize she too is flawed. Beneath the details of Monica's life, you hear she's overly pious. She's quite religious. I mean, there's many reasons that one could argue while Monica is presented glowingly, the more closely you look at Monica, she's not the person if you're trying to paint an incredible, lofty, profound moment of intellectual vision of one's self-ascent towards God. I mean, if Augustine was to do that, he probably would be better off doing it on his own or maybe having Olypius with him or having some other character be there that, that can really demonstrate the power and profoundity of how Augustine accomplished this task of seeing God. Yet instead, it is with his uneducated, unappreciated, overly pious mother whose only true accomplishment through Augustine's life has been the persistence of her tears. It is this woman who with him sees God, who in fact helps him to see God in a way which Augustine could never have seen God on his own. This moment with Monica will be followed, Augustine reports, by her death. In fact, she's going to die in Ostia, removed from Africa, removed from her home, which Augustine notes she really wanted to be buried back with her husband, yet she isn't. She dies in Ostia, will be buried there. And Augustine then has a final, really unexpected section. In fact, if you're reading this, you get kind of thrown by it. He begins to describe how deeply he wrestled with not showing his emotions. So Augustine is going to say when she dies, he works really hard to not cry. He is going to bury her and he still has mastery over his emotions. He is praying for her privately and is going to start to feel it all bubbling up within him. And yet he says, because he knows she is with the Lord, surely, surely he should not pour forth his tears. I'll just read you this section because again, Augustine's writing is so good. Here's what he says. Now came the moment when the body was born away. We followed it and returned again dry-eyed, for not even in the course of those prayers we poured out to you, when the sacrifice of our redemption was offered for her beside the grave, where the body had been laid prior to burial, as is the custom there. No, not even during those prayers did I weep, but all day long I was secretly weighed down by sorrow, and in my mental turmoil I begged you as best I could to heal my hurt. You did not. And this because, as I believe, you are reminding me that any sort of habit is bondage, even to a mind no longer feeding on deceitful words. I thought it a good idea to go and take a bath, because I had heard that the bath derived their names from the Greeks who called a bath a baleon, which means to throw away grief, because it banishes worry from the mind. This too I must confess to your mercy, O father of orphans, that I bathed and afterwards was quite unchanged, for I had not sweated the bitter sorrow out of my heart. But then I went to sleep, and on awaking I felt a good deal better. As I lay in bed alone, I remembered some lines by your servant Ambrose, which rang true for me. Creator God, O Lord of all, who rule the skies, you clothe the day, in radiant color, bid the night, in quietness serve the gracious sway, of sleep that weary limbs restored to labor's use may rise again, 
and jaded minds abate their fret, and mourners find release from pain. Little by little, I recovered my earlier thoughts about your handmaid, remembering how devout had been her attitude towards you, and how full of holy kindness, how willing to make allowances she had been in our regard. And now that I was suddenly bereft of this, I found comfort in weeping before you about her and for her, about myself and for myself. The tears that I had been holding back I now released to flow as plentifully as they would and strewed them as a bed beneath my heart. There it could rest, because there were your ears only, not the ears of anyone who would judge my weeping by the norms of his own pride. And now, Lord, it is in writing that I confess to you. Let anyone read it who will, and judge it as he wills. And if he finds it sinful that I had wept over my mother for a brief part of a single hour, the mother who had for a little space was to my sight dead, and who had wept long years for me, that in your sight I might live, then let such a reader not mock, but rather, if his love is wide enough, himself weep for my sins to you, who are father to all whom your Christ calls his brethren. What's going on here in the story? Well, Augustine leaves us with an unexpected state of unresolvedness, doesn't he? That his emotions are strewn, they're bottled up, they're raging against him, they're resisting containment, they're resisting even devotedness in the sense that Augustine knows he should be at peace and content that his mother is now with the Lord. And yet, the humanness of Augustine once more pours forth. And in pouring forth, Augustine depicts the change finally has occurred, that instead of pouring out his grief alone, he now pours out his grief as an orphan before a God who is a father to him. The prodigal son still grieving, is now finally at home in his father's house. And in fact, if you didn't catch it, we hear that Augustine finally, in this moment where his tears flow before his heavenly father, there his heart can finally rest because the ears of the Lord were listening to him. Augustine is not presented to us as perfect. He gives us no perfection upon which to stand. But instead, in the newness of this new life, which Augustine is so clearly still working out, this is how he's going to end book nine. And just track with this, I, I could almost weep tracing the journey that Augustine himself displays. He says, may she then rest in peace with her husband. She was married to no other man, either before or after him. And in serving him, she brought him forth into fruit for you by patience, to win him for you in the end. Inspire others, my Lord, my God. Inspire your servants who are my brethren, your children who are my masters, whom I now serve with heart and voice and pen, that as many of them as read this may remember Monica, your servant, at your altar, along with Patricius, sometime her husband. From their flesh you brought me into this life, though how I do not know. Let them remember with loving devotion these two who were my parents in this transitory light, but also were my brethren under you, our father, within our mother, the Catholic Church, and my fellow citizens in the eternal Jerusalem, for which your people sighs with longing throughout its pilgrimage from its setting out to its return. So may the last request she made of me be granted to her more abundantly by the prayers of many, evoked by my confessions, than by my prayers alone. 
here at the end of his narrative, Augustine at least seems to glimpse the glimmer of peace that he has made not only with his mother, but also with his father, who we find only at the end, unexpectedly, became a Christian himself late, late in his life, who Augustine now names. He doesn't name his father throughout the rest of his work, but here now in the end, he tells us his father's name. And he says not only to pray for his mother, but to also pray for his father, both of whom were and are now his brethren in Christ. I mean, that is some serious psychological resolve. That is some deep healing that Augustine is moving towards as he, in just a humbled state of acceptance, sees his parents as the givers of life to him and as the fell pilgrims with him on the way to eternal Jerusalem, for whom he now asks that others would remember them in prayer. Where does book eight and book nine leave us in the confessions? It leaves me floored with the artistry that only a masterpiece of literature could accomplish. There's so much to unpack. There's so much to untangle. Yet, so often with any great piece of literature, the joy is just simply to sit in it, to chew on it, to come back to it, to read it again, to see how Augustine's story stirs, directs, challenges your own story. Yet, if I were to summarize this episode, I would note that the real invitation of Augustine is to consider what your own confession of identity might be. I wrestled with this series, what to call it. I don't know that I got the name right, crisis of identity, although I certainly think most of us live our whole lives with a crisis of identity, even before or after we come to know Christ. Yet in this episode, with this story, Augustine has laid before us his own humanness and frailness and finitude to demonstrate to us what an honest assessment of oneself could be before God in order to ask, do you too have anything to declare? Do you too have anything to confess? Do you too have any conversion of the soul that may be required if you are going to live life before God and to receive to receive the grace of life that ultimately, when you're really honest, you come back to this conclusion, was a gift the whole time. That you too this whole time have simply been on the way, looking for home, attempting to return to home. That none of us have yet made it to that eternal city of Jerusalem for which all our hearts were built to long. So, do you need to turn? in order to travel back? Do you need to gather friends around you who can help you on this way? Do you need to make peace with your own father or your own mother, both of whom likely in the very act of creating you gave you a gift you could never repay and yet in their own imperfected states, you discover had to be Nothing more and yet nothing less than fellow pilgrims with you on the way, looking for this city, the eternal city that God has been calling all of us to. Can you come to rest before your creator? This is what Augustine's invitation to confess is all about. So wherever you find yourself, 
And we are not yet done in this journey of confessing our identities in exploring the crisis of identity. May you come to rest in a heavenly father who hears even the agonies of your tears. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.